Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word with me and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4. And as we're getting ready there, I'll open up by telling you a, a bit of a story to compare this one to. Generations before the story that we're about to hear, another story kind of in parallel took place. But instead of being in a desert, it happened in the very garden of paradise itself. Instead of the second Adam having fasted alone in the desert, the first Adam, created child of God, made in his image, inheritor of the world, a place filled with every delight, no death, no illness, no disease, no pain, no suffering, no work. And he lived in the constant companionship of his wife and of God. But before too awful long, a member of the heavenly court grew jealous. See, it was his position that he would become an heir of the king. Certain members of the angelic court didn't like that. So while she was alone, his wife was confronted by this voice. Did God really say this? Did the word of God actually mean this? There's this one thing that God says he's holding away from you. But it's not for your own good. The reason is that God doesn't want you to grow this way. God doesn't want you to be like Him. God doesn't want you to have all of this power. God wants you to stay low. Go ahead and eat, for you will not surely die. And Adam, the first Adam, who didn't have to work, who didn't have to suffer in any way, shape, or form, who had all of perfection at his fingertips, who had a full belly, decided that he wanted to be his own God and fell. The story that we're about to hear takes place not in the paradise of God, but in the wilderness of Judea. An inhospitable, barren desert. A place not with the warmth of God's love, but with the beating heat of the sun. Where he was not filled with earthly delights, but was hungry because he was fasting in preparation for his mission for 40 days. Where Christ did not have the companionship of a bride at that time but was alone 
sent out by the Holy Spirit of God to be tested. I want you to notice the differences and yet the similarities in this story. As we turn together, Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. This was right after his baptism. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them he was hungry. Now, that seems like a well-done statement. Let me, let me give you the context of this. In the image of Moses' 40 days on the mount, when he was getting the word of God, uh, several rabbis to that day, to this day in fact, went on a 40-day fast. They prepared their bodies for a time so that they could go a 40-day period on reduced intake, if, if anything at all. This was done in times of preparation. This was done in times of devotion. And sometimes this was done as a penitential act. But in Jesus' case, this was something that was done in reflection of the one prophet that he would be superseding. For before Moses was, I am. The voice of the Savior calls. He was preparing to assume the authority of his ministry. And so he journeys into the Judean wilderness where for 40 days he would commit himself not to food, but to prayer. To finding the presence of God. And for 40 days, the same voice that spoke to Eve in the garden, the same voice that tempted our parents, so to speak, into falling, would now be heard by the ears of our Savior. And as the fasting cycle was drawing to a completion, as the six-week fast was finishing, his body signaled that it was time to get back into the rhythm of eating. After you complete this kind of fast, your body tells you it's time to eat. It's a survival skill. So when it says he was hungry, this is not just a, well, he's gone without food for 40 days, so certainly he was hungry. No, this was the end of his fasting cycle, and he wasn't just hungry. His body was signaling the fact that he was starving. And the tempter said to him, the devil, the Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the voice of the serpent of old, as John would later tell us in the book of Revelation, came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him and said, You shall not live on bread alone. To complete the quote, but man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what he's saying here, In this first temptation, the enemy is targeting Jesus' humanity. He's targeting the temptation of the flesh. He's targeting the natural needs of the person's body 
to go away from the will of God. And that's something that is in his playbook that is still very much part of our lives to the here and now. Incidentally, the Greek work that is translated if in your copy of God's word, depending upon your translation, actually is an affirmative. If then you are the son of God. More literally, it should be since you are the Son of God. This is a positive affirmation. Since you're the Son of God, if you're this hungry, if you're starving, you have the divine power. You have the magic of God, if you will. Point your fingers at those rocks and turn them into bread to satisfy your, your bodily desires. But Jesus says, while he is here, in this particular mode of ministry. He will return one day as the coming king. He will return one day as the Lord of Lords. But as he would later say in the book of John, I do nothing unless the Father tells me. He will do nothing outside of the will of God. He will not break the law of God. And it was not the will of God right now that he should succumb to the temptation of the enemy. He should stand as an example to us of devotion. So even after the 40-day fasting cycle, even after his body was telling him the natural fast is over, we need nutrition. Even after his body was starting to grow weaker and weaker and weaker, and the enemy was telling him, you have this in your power. Jesus says it is not God's will. For it is not only the natural needs of the body that we should ever consider as human beings. It's also the needs of the soul. The need of the soul is a relationship with God. The need of the soul is to belong in fellowship with our Creator. The need of the soul is to be obedient to Him who first loved us. So Jesus tells the tempter, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, you shall not live by bread alone. The physical needs are not all the picture. The physical needs are not it. But you can live and you will live by the words, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Almighty God. We are not just a body. The body is not all that is considered. And it's unfortunate right now that we live in a, a society that seems to focus all on that. Either it focuses all on food, or it focuses all on sex, or it focuses on, on, all on feeling good. But the fact of the matter is what Jesus is telling the tempter is there is so much more to this universe. There is so much more to you than just your body. When I address you, when I talk to you, when I speak to you, not just from behind the pulpit, but in person. I'm not addressing your body, I'm addressing your soul. The person we are, the intellect, the emotions, the memories, the personality, that which is within us that will precede us past death. The mind of the individual, the psychology, in fact the word psyche means soul. Psychotherapy literally means the care of the soul. How many of you knew that? It's a little bit of trivia for you, just in case you're on jeopardy. But the soul is that which will survive the body and echo throughout all of eternity. 
And Jesus said, there, he's basically saying there is so much more to consider, but the natural person doesn't know that. The natural person who is only under the influence of the enemy behaves as we're about to read from the Apostle Paul. There are only two types of people. I know that that's said an awful lot, but in this case it's absolutely true. There's only really two types of people. Those through Christ who are a child of God, knowingly, and those who are the natural person, those that don't have the influence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, those that have rejected Christ, who are a slave to the enemy unknowingly. Let me say that again and write that down in your notes. If you are in Christ, you are a servant and thus you are a child of God knowingly, or conversely, without Christ, without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, you are a slave of the enemy unknowingly, unaware. This is the way Paul describes it from Philippians 3, if you want to jot that down in your notes as well. Philippians 3.18 tells us that, as I have often told you before and now, Till you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. The only part of themselves that they're drawn to care about is their body, is their physical needs, is their physical desires. What can bring me pleasure? What can bring me strength? What can bring me an emotional high? I know that you've heard that being said. This is what the person without Christ shows. But Christ shows us a different way. That was the first temptation. The temptation, the appeal to the flesh. The next is the temptation of power. The enemy continues, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. I want you to pay attention to what he's actually tempting Christ with. God made this world out of nothingness. God created this planet, all of its riches, and all that live upon it. The book of John in the first chapter actually tells us that through Christ everything was made, and outside of Christ nothing was made. But the world from the point of Adam on was in rebellion. And again, if you're not in Christ, as the child of God, then you are in the enemy's camp as his slave. And what, what, uh, what the devil is telling me is because the bulk of the planet doesn't know God, has rejected God. Because the bulk of the planet doesn't worship God, they end up worshiping me. Either through idols or through their own bodies, they worship the enemy. They worship the darkness. They worship the sin. They worship the tempter. So all of this, will I let you have authority over if you do the same? 
from the book of the prophet Isaiah, when he calls out to an earthly king named Lucifer and says that this is an echo. You who are an earthly king are actually an echo of a heavenly reality because you are wanting to supersede God. That's what the devil tried to do. Through his rebellion, a third of the heavenly host, as we'll learn in Revelation, fell from the sky. He wants people to worship. He craves the worship of humans because he wants to steal glory from God. He wants to convince God that we are all flawed and not worthy of him. He wants to supersede God as the almighty king of this universe. That's his goal. And he's willing to try to rob God of his family one child at a time. Which is all the more reason why we need to get out there and let the people that we know who are not in Christ know that Christ is there to save. Not only for the sake of their own souls, but to bring glory to God. But here he's telling Jesus in this one image that if you'll fall on your knees and worship me, You don't have to look to Revelation. You don't have to go through all the blood. You don't have to let loose the horsemen. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll give it to you right now. Turn your back on the Father. Look what He's going to do to you. Look at the tears of blood that you're going to have to weep. Look at the crown of thorns that's going to be smacked onto your head. Look at the railroad spike-sized nails that are going to go through your hands and feet as you gasp for breath. Look at all that your father is sending you to go through because of them, because of these hairless apes that don't want you, because of the very flawed, finite, fickle, feeble human beings that he created. You don't have to do this. I'll give them to you right now. And you can punish them as you wish. All you have to do is bend the knee. Worship me. That's what he's really saying. Bypass the cross. Bypass Armageddon. You don't have to suffer. They don't want you anyway. That's the underlying tone. So when we read this next verse, what I really want you to understand is that he's not just quoting Deuteronomy again. He's not just defending the faith again. He's not being a fundamentalist. Even though he's harboring himself in the word of God, what he's doing is he's proclaiming a mission out of love for you. See, if there wasn't some truth in what the enemy was saying, it wouldn't be a temptation. If there was nothing, no gravity to it, it wouldn't be a temptation. But these next words that God says, he says, out of love for you. So in verse 7 that we read, to, we read together, Jesus answered, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, and serve him, what? Only. For it is the will of the Father, we will later read, that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance 
through Christ Jesus. The enemy says, turn your back on God and worship me. The Son of God says, my Father's will is the cross. My Father's will is that I am the first of many brethren. My Father's will is that I am the ransom. There's only one room for one God. There's only ever room for one God. And this is the only God of any pantheon, this is the only God of any religion who provides a sacrifice for his children. In these few words, in this one quote, where he only speaks the word of God, he's reminding the enemy that this is the only way and I'm going to carry it out, out of God's love and God's grace. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Lastly, there's the temptation of fame. In our culture today, this is, this is a big one. Because anyone with a decent cell phone can launch a bid to be famous. They don't have to have a recording contract, thanks to things like YouTube and Facebook. They don't have to have people notice them from Los Angeles or from New York or from Florida. All they have to do is just record them, put them in the right place, and wait for the influence to begin. This is a heavy temptation for us. We want recognition. We want to feel the adulation of people. Sometimes it's as simple as wanting to know that the path we're on is the right path. But again, this is of the flesh. The only person whose will that we should honestly be concerned with is who? God's. If we're in His will, that's all that matters. You plus God make a majority. The end. But the flesh says otherwise. The flesh says that the crowd is more important than God. The flesh says that numbers matter more than just the one who made it all. The flesh says that the lights and the pomp and the circumstance and the wealth and the dollar signs, that's what matters, that's what will make me secure, that's where my hope lies. And if that's where your hope lies in the mob, then your hope lies in vain. But God is with us if we're in Christ. That's something that we need to harbor in our hearts always. There's a reason why I spent an entire series talking about the precious promises of God. Because they hold us fast when the world doesn't. When the world breaks apart. When the mob turns its back on you. When the crowd decides that you're better burned at the stake than kept alive. Promises of God prevail. You plus God are a majority. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, you've been using the word of God at me. So, young'un, I'm going to use it back at you. 
Every word of the prophet, this is the enemy's conceptualization right now. Every word of the prophet I overheard. Every time someone says anything in a synagogue, I know about it. Every time a pastor preaches something, I know about it. Because the people who need to come down to the altar and give their lives to Christ, I will hold them back. Every time someone feels the conviction of needing the prayer, I will hold them back. Every time that somebody needs to transform their life, I will hold them back. So yes, I'm in every church service. I'm in every time that the Bible is studied. I am there to make sure that the people that God rescues are as few as humanly possible. So you want to throw the word of God at me, I'm going to throw it back at you. The trick is he doesn't do a very good job of it. In fact, he misquotes it here. The best lies are always peppered with a little bit of the truth. And that's what the enemy is doing here. That's his technique. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. How did Jesus respond? The people down there that are the crowd, the people that are going to look up at you as you tumble, the people that are staring at you right now, from the height of the temple, the place, the house of prayer, you know, for all of Israel, for the world. These people down there are the same people that you're going to be preaching and teaching to, the same people that are going to wave palm branches in front of you, and then in the next breath turn around and say, let his blood be on us and our children, crucify him. They are flawed, they are feeble, they are fickle, and they will turn their backs on you instantly. But I can give you a leg up. Throw yourself from here, so that your God will send his angels to rescue you. And as they're carrying you on their pinions, the world can see with their own eyes, outside of faith. They can see with the flesh that you are the Son of God and that you have this kind of authority. Abandon your first mission. Abandon the words of the prophets. Abandon saving them. Make them an army. Let's have Armageddon right now. That's the temptation. This is what Jesus shouts back with. It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Do not put God to the test. A simple phrase but a profound one. So the question for us to consider, because Jesus is our example, we think of him, we think of this as being easy because he's the son of God. But he is our example. Would we have the devotion to the word of God to be able to defend ourselves because that's the only way we can? Do we have the single-minded devotion to our Heavenly Father to glorify Him instead of wanting glory for ourselves? That's the temptation. Do we have the wherewithal 
and the willingness of spirit to deny our bodies so that our testimony before others and therefore the way that we glorify God can be preserved. See, if, if the world sees that those who call themselves Christians are the same as everybody else, we're not going to have an impact. If the world sees that our divorce rates inside the house of God are the same as those outside of the house of God, we're not going to have an impact. If the world sees that the people inside of the house of God are as immoral, as liable to change, as liable to leave their commitments because of bad weather, as everybody else is, then we're not going to have an impact. Our Savior was beginning to starve. And he said, the body isn't all that there is, but the will of the Father is. He was offered supreme authority over this universe without having to go to the cross. And he said, no, the will of the Father is that I go to the cross so that I can rescue you. He was offered the ability to shock and awe people into belief instead of preaching and teaching, instead of being a living example of the Word of God. And he reminded the enemy that the will of God is more vital and more valuable than fame and than glory. Because in God's will, tucked away in God's will, as expressed in his word on every page, every letter of every word, in God's will is his extraordinary love and grace for you. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he lived until he had an opportune time. The other gospel writer, Matthew, puts it another way. The devil left him and the angels came. The angels that had been there all along. The angels who had been watching over him just as the word of God had promised made themselves known and tended to him. The promises of God are valuable and precious. The enemy tries to tempt us out of the promises of God by saying that the here and now is way too dangerous. The here and now is much more important. The here and now is all that there is. But Jesus himself, on top of, of the temple building, one of the wonders of the world at the time, a very high place, not only overlooking, not only is a tall building, but the giant retaining wall that holds the building itself up, He believed in the promises of God, but he also knew that the will of God was vital. And here we see the promise of God and the will of God fulfilled in one passage of Scripture. What can we gain from this? First, I believe 
that this is a reminder that your eternity is supremely valuable to God. Your eternity is very precious to God because he wants you to spend your eternity with him. You were not designed for hell. Hell was reserved for the enemy and his followers. You, as a child of the king, are destined for heaven. That's what he wants for all of us, all who would believe. So there will be times of trial. There will be times of tempting. There will be times when we are, are, are sorely wanting to give in just this once. But what God is ultimately saying, if you resist the tempter, if you overcome, if you remember the love of God through his will, then when that episode is over, when that season has passed, you'll see that your victory has not only won a credit for you in the kingdom of God, but somebody else who's been paying attention has noticed, and it's drawing them closer to the kingdom as well. Remember God's will always. Remember that eternity is much more important than right now. And remember everything that Jesus, in these three simple statements, said no to out of his devotion to his heavenly Father, out of his love for you. And all God's people said. And heavenly Father, as we transition now from the, from the service of the word to the time of invitation, as the musicians approach, Lord, we ask that you would dispel the enemy from this place. As we hold our hearts up to you now, that if there is any need on any heart, Lord, be it the special embrace of you, be it the need to come to know you in a free pardon of sin, the need for baptism, the need to just let their voices be raised in prayer for the special burden that is weighing them down, Whatever the need is, let your will prevail here. Draw unto the altar all that you would have to come, knowing that your love for them is much more precious than any of the temptations of the present. Let your will be made known. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.